This is an Area Code podcast. song plays in your head when you think of Hawaii. For me, four decades of consuming mainland American TV and movies has cemented the song Aloha Way as the soundtrack to a breezy, carefree sway in a beach hammock between two coconut palms. Thanks Elvis. Thanks beer commercials. Thanks Daffy Duck cartoons. The ubiquity of Aloha Way in mainland media is not as benign as it might seem. This is not a song to sip a blue Hawaiian cocktail and wonder if it could get any better than this by. The song was written in 1876 by a young woman, Lydia Kamakeha, at a time when Hawaii was an independent kingdom, fully recognized by other nations as a sovereign state, though since the arrival of James Cook nearly 100 years earlier, Foreign missionaries and mercenaries had been aggressively increasing their influence and control over the islands. The story goes that Lydia was leaving a party, and witnessed, along the tree line of Kaneohe Bay, a man's warm and yearning embrace of his love, who was leaving for the night. Lydia captured the feeling of longing, of reluctant departure, in a melody she began humming on the horse ride home. She later composed the words. English translation of the chorus is the charming one who dwells in the shaded bowers one fond embrace ere I depart until we meet again fifteen years later Lydia Kamakeha would take the name Queen Liliuokalani and the throne of the kingdom of Hawaii when her brother King Kalakaua passes away by the time Liliuokalani comes into power, the Kingdom of Hawaii's autonomy was already severely weakened by a foreign interference, mostly by Americans after sugar. One regrettably costly event was King Kamakaeha's signing of what is known as the Bayonet Constitution, so named because of the threat he and his people were under at its drafting and signing. The Bayonet Constitution disenfranchised two-thirds of Native Hawaiians and the Japanese, Chinese, Korean, and Filipino immigrants that were recruited to work the sugar crops, denying voting rights to these groups, and granting voting privileges only to landowners and those who could meet a minimum threshold of wealth, including foreigners. Foreigners, read white Americans, could now hold public office as well. This enabled the white American and British residents to take further control of the government, disenfranchising poorer native Hawaiians. With foreign interests around the commodity of sugar so entrenched in the political future of the independent kingdom, 
Queen Liliuokalani certainly could predict the demise of her government and way of life as she ascended the throne. The queen attempts to write a new constitution, one that will restore the monarchy and the native people to full power. This does not sit well with the Americans, and two years after Queen Liliuokalani takes the throne, her government is overtaken by a coup, led by Americans and supported by American minister to the Hawaiian Kingdom, John L. Stevens, who also secured an American military presence during the coup. The queen is overthrown and put under house arrest, and the Kingdom of Hawaii is temporarily annexed by the United States, though the incoming president, Grover Cleveland, condemns Stevens' actions and forces him to retire, and refuses to recognize the provincial government set up by the overthrowers. When William McKinley becomes president in 1897, he is in favor of annexation, but does not have congressional support. Hawaiians are protesting annexation at this time. Representatives of Queen Liliuokalani travel to Washington, D.C. to make their case on behalf of the Hawaiians. The tide seems to be turning in favor of the Hawaiian people. That is, until the Spanish-American War makes a fueling station in the Pacific a military priority. Several congressmen change their minds, and Hawaii is officially annexed by the United States in 1898. Under annexation, the Hawaiian language, one of the oldest in the world, was banned in official settings, and English was required in schools and government. Under occupation, Hawaiian songs took on political meaning, both implicit and explicit. Even the act of composing songs in Hawaiian was a political statement. Aloha Oe, the song at the top of this episode, takes on a new meaning by a people whose land and queen had been stolen from them. In her lifetime, Queen Liliokalani wrote over 200 additional songs. The Queen, educated by missionaries and adoptive of Christian values like nonviolence, wrote a song to her missionary overthrowers while imprisoned, entitled The Queen's Prayer. At the bottom of the song manuscript, she wrote, Composed during my imprisonment at Iolani Palace by the missionary party who overthrew my government. Here's a gorgeous recent version by Kuule Music. Links to Kuule Music are in the show description if you want to check them out. read, Your loving mercy is as high as heaven, and your truth so perfect. I live in sorrow, imprisoned. You are my light, your glory my support. Behold not with malevolence the sins of man, but forgive and cleanse. And so, O Lord, protect us beneath your wings, and let peace be our portion, now and forevermore. Others writing songs at this time were not as pious as the Queen. Eleanor Keiko Ayo Hawaii Kalani Wright Prendergast wrote the song Kaulana Na Pua in 1893, the year of the coup. Here's a 1974 version by Myrtle K. Hilo. (laughs) 
Do not fix a signature to the paper of the enemy with its sin of annexation and sale of the civil rights of the people. We do not value the government's hills of money. We are satisfied with the rocks, the wondrous food of the land. All that happens in this episode of Wildwood Flower and the story of Annie Kerr takes place between the time when Queen Liliuokalani's government is overthrown and annexed by the United States in 1941, when the United States entered World War II after the bombing of Pearl Harbor, which was the very site that was so precious during the Spanish-American War that led to the annexation of the Kingdom of Hawaii by the U.S. Alohawe does not feel right in the mouth of Elvis, or Daffy Duck anymore, does it? It's not a song for sipping blue Hawaiians. We're talking about the music of a people whose land was taken by foreigners for sugar and kept out of military convenience. Keep this in mind. So let's get to Annie Kerr and what she and Hawaii have to do with country music. Annie Kerr was a steel guitarist. In fact, she was the first Wahine Hawaiian steel guitarist to be recorded. Wahine is a Hawaiian word that means woman. Here is perhaps Annie Kerr's most popular song, I've Gone Native Now. What you hear in that clip is Annie on steel guitar, accompanied by the Farden sisters on guitar and ukulele. The steel guitar would become indispensable to the sound of country music, at least what is considered classic country music, whose time may have passed, but don't worry y'all, Alan Jackson is bringing it back. Soft steel guitar, oh how I've missed you. Annie Kerr was born in Honolulu in 1905. She got her start singing as part of the Royal Hawaiian Girls Glee Club, Hawaii's first all-girls glee club that began as part of the YWCA in 1917. It then moved to the Royal Hawaiian Hotel in 1927, and the glee club became the hotel's resident performers. Here's the Royal Hawaiian Girls Glee Club in 1927 singing the Royal Hawaiian Hotel, the earliest recording I could find. The Glee Club often backed famed Hawaiian musician Johnny Noble. More on him later. In 
1928, Annie forms the group Annie Kerr and her trio. The trio's cast rotated, with Annie being the only constant. Kind of like The Fall with Marky e. Smith or Fleetwood Mac with Mick Fleetwood. Members include Thelma Anahu. <laughs> Helani Doane, Mila Peterson Yap, Nani Makakoa. Each of these women would go on to make significant contributions to Hawaiian culture and music. Maybe it's fair to say that the Annie Kerr Trio is kind of like the NWA or the Buffalo Springfield of early Hawaiian music. It's maybe more revered for the artists it spawned than for the music it made. It seems that the Annie Kerr Trio's most famous members are sisters, Ermgard Farden Aluli and Diana Farden Fernandez. Aluli is considered the most prolific woman composer of Hawaii since Queen Liliokalani. Let's detour a little bit. Let's discuss the Hawaiian steel guitar, its invention, and its significance to country music. It all started when a metal comb fell out of a shirt pocket on a walk along a railroad line. The comb struck the strings of a cheap guitar. The cheap-on-cheap cheap scratch, the bend and bristle of the steel, and teeth sounded like music to someone. They wanted to hear it again. Here's another telling of this legend. My name's Elizabeth Kawanakinilani Arshembo, and my great-uncle is Joseph Kikuku, the inventor of the Hawaiian steel guitar. When Joseph was 11 years old, he happened to be walking down a railroad track with his guitar, and he picked up a metal bolt and he made his way down the tracks and at some point the bolt hit the strings of the guitar and it made the sound that caught his ear. Following his accidental discovery, Joseph Kikuku spent hours in the metal shop of Kamehameha School, perfecting a slide. Adding steel strings to his guitar and raising them from the fretboard, he created an instrument that would travel the world. The Hawaiian steel guitar is born, though the ease found in the legend of its origin contrasts with the ardor Kakeku experienced in perfecting the sound. He spent years mastering the technique, and many other Hawaiians followed in learning to play. In 1904, Kakeku and many other Hawaiians came to the U.S. mainland to perform and instigated a boom in Hawaiian music. One of the most influential events in popularizing Hawaiian music was the 1915 Panama Pacific Exposition in San Francisco, which was arranged to celebrate the completion of the Panama Canal. More than 17 million visitors attended the exposition over a span of seven months, and one of the most popular attractions was the Hawaii Pavilion, 
where Hawaiian culture, including steel guitar music, was presented to many attendees for the first time. In the following years, Hawaiian sounds found their way into mainstream popular music via Tin Pan Alley tunes. Many Hawaiian steel guitar players, like Joseph Kakeku, flourished professionally during this time. The sound of the steel guitar was further amplified by Walter Kolomuku in the Hawaiian Quintet, who recorded for Victor in 1913. Steel guitar, along with the ukulele, became the sound of Hawaii in the popular imagination. Like any powerful sound, the Hawaiian steel guitar echoes and reverberates as it makes contact with other sounds, in particular the blues slide guitar. Here's Sam Moore, recording in 1921 on what he called the octocorda, an A-string version of the Hawaiian steel. This is Sylvester Weaver's Guitar Rag from Country-adjacent music, Riley Puckett used the Hawaiian steel in a hillbilly song in 1926. Bill Carter was inspired to take up the steel guitar after hearing Frank Ferreira's work in the 1920s. Here's Frank. Upon my 
not steel guitar, but it may be interesting to consistent listeners of this podcast. Cleo Mabro, episode 8, borrowed from Queen Lilio Kalani's Aloha Way in her 1929 song, Prene's Courage. Amplified Hawaiian Steel was first recorded on Noah Laney's Hawaiian Orchestra in 1933, and later by Sol Hoopi and Sam Cokie in 1934. Bob Dunn also records an amplified steel with Milton Brown's Brownies, followed by Leon McAuliffe's playing on what became the first number one hit for Bob Wills and his Texas Playboys in 1936, Steel Guitar Rag, which you might recognize as a Sylvester Weaver song we played earlier. All aboard this train, everybody get on, ready, let's go boys, kick it off Leon, kick it off. there are direct links between Hawaiian steel guitar and the sounds of country music. Example after example could be given. In Hawaii, guitar playing and innovation was not just the domain of men. Photographic evidence from this time period shows more women than men playing guitar. Annie Kerr is considered the first Hawaiian wahine not only to play steel guitar, but to make a career for herself in the recording industry performing from the mid-1920s through the 1960s with her rotating cast. As far as I can tell, they only recorded six sides for commercial use, including the aforementioned I've Gone Native Now and In a Canoe and E Mama E. Here's In a Canoe. Here's a mama a. <laughs> 
But the Annie Kerr trio didn't become famous through their records. They put in the work, playing the radio and parties around Hawaii. We heard Johnny Noble singing with the Royal Hawaiian Girls Glee Club in 1930. Johnny Noble would be instrumental in popularizing Hawaiian music to the mainland with his hapahole style of music, or half-foreign music. From what I understand about hapaihole, it's the music designed to appeal to a broader audience, incorporating more English language than Hawaiian, and themes and styles that would appeal to mainlanders. The Annie Kerr songs that we've heard, In a Canoe and I've Gone Native Now, would fit into this category. The Annie Kerr trio often backed Johnny Noble on Honolulu's KGU radio. The Annie Kerr trio were undoubtedly a pop group. They tried to look their best, they dressed in shark skin, they dressed in all white with gloves to match. Annie was the arranger of the popular songs they recorded, and she recruited younger women to join her group in order to keep the music fresh and current. The Annie Kerr Trio would also perform on Friday nights on Webley Edwards' KGMB radio program Hawaii Calls, which presented authentic Hawaiian music for 40 years, from 1935 to 1975. Annie Kerr was not only a stellar, influential musician, she was also a superior athlete. She played softball, baseball, and basketball through the Women's Athletic League. She rowed for the Honolulu Girls Rowing Club. In 1933, she won the Hawaii Women's Singles Tennis Championship defeating her one-time Annie Kerr trio bandmate Thelma Anahu in straight sets. Annie couldn't get by on just music. Her day job was a dental assistant and an x-ray technician for the Strong Carter Dental Clinic of Honolulu, named after the first lady of the territory of Hawaii, Helen Strong Carter. Annie Kerr worked there from 1931 to 1967, becoming the first president of the Honolulu Country Dental Assistance Association in 1949. The Annie Kerr trio disbands in the 1960s after Annie Kerr dies on January 6th of 1967. Her death happened while the group was still in high demand. The Fardin sisters formed the band Puamana in response, with Annie Kerr trio member and 1933 state tennis runner-up Thelma Anahu. Hawaii becomes a U.S. state in 1959. It's not until 1978 that the Hawaiian language ban is lifted, and Hawaii becomes the only U.S. state to not have English as its official language. It's not until 1993 that the U.S. government apologizes for the illegal overthrow and annexation of the Kingdom of Hawaii nearly 100 years earlier. We'll leave this episode with a story from one of the Annie Kerr Trio's late 1950 performances, around the time of Hawaiian statehood. The trio was presented with a song to perform by ancient hula interpreter Aiolani Luahine. The song was not a dance, but a, quote, lyric to be offered in reverent interpretation, which the Annie Kerr trio, the pop group, the dance band, the Hopahole backing group, reverently performed. The song was the recently uncovered and recently published Kaulana Na Pua, which you remember was written by Eleanor Keiko Ao Hawaii Kalani Wright Prendergast, shortly after Queen Lilio Kalani's overthrow in 1893. 
Again, those lyrics are, Do not fix a signature to the paper of the enemy with its sin of annexation and sale of the civil rights of the people. We do not value the government's hills of money. We are satisfied with the rocks, the wondrous food of the land. We support Lilio Kalani, who has won the rights of the land. The story is told of the people who love the land. Thanks for listening to Wildwood Flower. If you have any additional information to share about Annie Kerr, please be in touch. I'd love to find out more. Artists, if you're inspired to cover any songs from any of the episodes, please send the songs my way. I'd love to have an all-covers episode featuring artists from Season 1, but I need songs to do that. Get in touch through Instagram or through Gmail. Information on how to do that is in the show description. We're nearing the end of Season 1 of Wildwood Flower. I'm working on Season 2, which should air shortly after Season 1. I'd like to make some improvements to the podcast. Nothing significant, just some tweaks here and there. Maybe a companion website, maybe improved artwork and theme song. These little things take time and labor. If you're enjoying what I'm doing and would like to see it continue, please consider supporting me. Please consider also rating and reviewing the podcast on whatever platforms you use. Tell your friends. Reach out and tell me what you think. Ways to do this are in the show description as well. Our next episode will be an exploration of Western music through the life and brief career of Arizona artist Billy Maxwell. See you then.